Kathleen Durkin of Columbia's Zuckerman Institute. And I'm Devin Powell of the Zuckerman Institute. Welcome to Lab in the Time of Coronavirus. This podcast follows the lives of scientists at our institute and at Columbia University who are pivoting to combat COVID-19 in this time of crisis. Today we're exploring an online gathering where scientists and scholars at the forefront of dealing with COVID are coming together to share their latest research. Their talks at the Columbia Virtual COVID Symposium draw an audience of hundreds every week. And our story starts with a talk given on April 15th. Think back to mid-April. Things were bad in Italy. There were 160,000 cases of COVID and the numbers were rising. But two doctors in Bologna, Italy took the time to hop on Zoom and share their experience. And here at Columbia, a pulmonologist named Janine Darmiento, who was in the middle of dealing with the New York COVID outbreak, tuned in to learn from the Italian experience. At the time that we heard that talk, we were still in the middle of kind of chaos, patients coming in, patients coming in, no chance to sort of think about the, the clinical issues. And they, being from Italy, had already begun to think about that. The two doctors from Bologna, Dr. Massimo Baiocchi and Dr. Maria Benedetto, had recognized that COVID wasn't your typical ARDS. You'll hear this acronym again. It stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, ARDS. Dr. Darmiento had noticed that too. Her patients had unusually severe oxygen deprivation in their blood, which doctors call hypoxia. These patients become incredibly hypoxic, you know, suddenly. So normally ARDS patient, if they have the flu or something, they come in, they're a little bit hypoxic and it takes time and there's not this big sudden event. And we had this sense like that you can catch the patients before they crash, then you can avoid the ventilator, hopefully. My colleagues and I had been talking about some of what they were doing. The Italian doctors were using the gas nitric oxide, which regulates the body's response to hypoxia. This isn't a standard procedure in New York, but it's something Darmiento wants doctors here to think about. A lot of us are very, that, that think about what's going on really want this to be considered. And then to hear that they were doing it was like, oh, great. We're all on the same page. Exchanging knowledge like this and making connections between those at the forefront of dealing with COVID, this is what the Columbia Symposium is all about. The COVID Symposium is actually, uh, it's a way to share the, the collective imagination of one of the most talented group of scientists in the world that are here at Columbia that now we extend it to sort of share the imagination of uh, researchers throughout the United States and, 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 and the world. That's Andrea Califano, one of the organizers of the symposium. He's the founding chair of the Department of Systems Biology at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. This is a virus that kills people now, and we think that uh, being absolutely open and sharing uh, everything, including data, including methodologies, including reagents, is going to be absolutely the way to go. The symposium was organized in a matter of days, and it drew a much larger crowd than anticipated right from the start. One of the really striking things has been the speed. Uh, you know, we're basically, the first symposium was organized in three days. The night before, we realized that we were going to have more than a thousand users that would potentially be interested in following the symposium. Our original uh, webcasting was for 300 people. 
In the end, we ended up having 935. And fortunately, we were able at the very last minute to change and to have 1,000 seats. To handle this massive online gathering, Dr. Califano recruited Kelly Remold. She's the Senior Director of Programs at the Zuckerman Institute. So as someone who oversees both public-facing events and events that bring together scientists across disciplines, I was positioned to put in place the structure of an even bigger effort and stage to bring COVID researchers together from across the university. We pushed the announcement of those seminars to 14,000 people across the university, and the response was overwhelming. The team also enlisted volunteers to help get the talks onto YouTube. We've been listening to these talks, like the ones given by the Italian doctors. In another one of them, Andrea Califano presents his latest genetics work. Instead of focusing on the virus itself, which is constantly mutating, constantly changing, Dr. Califano is investigating the host environment in our bodies that the virus infects. He hopes that this approach will lead to new kinds of treatments. So what we're trying to do is to really understand how uh, the virus actually interacts with the host system because the proteins in the host system, they will not mutate as rapidly. And therefore, you know, whatever works today, if you find a good recipe, um, it will also work tomorrow. In fact, there's a drug among the ones that we have prioritized that is already in clinical trials uh, for COVID-19 and hopefully will also be at Columbia. One talk that got a big reaction was given by Alison Norfel, a Columbia nursing scientist. She's been studying the stresses that healthcare workers are experiencing and some of the solutions they're helping. Surprisingly, burnout decreased, but there was excessive worry. There are high anxiety levels, generally surrounding transmission to the home. Some of the strategies that are being used right now to improve clinician well-being are support groups, both virtually and on-site. Some talked about the increased amount of teamwork has increased their sense of resilience. Something very positive is a change in workflow to encourage on-site breaks when possible. There's also celebrating daily goals. This, according to the perspectives of the workforce, is having a great impact on their own physical and psychological health. David Brenner, a theoretical physicist at Columbia, talked about using ultraviolet light to kill COVID in the environment. UV light is not a medical treatment in any way, but it effectively kills the virus in the air and on surfaces outside the human body. We actually know um, how to kill uh, every possible kind of uh, microbe, bacteria, viruses. And that's with ultraviolet light. And we've known that for more than 100 years. The issue with conventional uh, germicidal UV, it's, uh, it's a health hazard. It uh, causes skin cancer, causes eye diseases. We uh, started to think about far UVC light. And, and specifically, that's at the far end of the ultraviolet spectrum. In principle, at least, far UVC light has the same germicidal properties as conventional UV, but is potentially safe. As the symposium enters its second month, Andrea Califano and the other organizers are trying to further broaden its reach. Yeah, they're trying to create a big tent, a welcoming forum for scholars who study everything from data visualization techniques for COVID-19 to the racial disparities brought to light in this crisis. You know, we started from a very molecular perspective, very 
sort of driven by you know the, the classical approach to viral virology studies. Um, but we're now bifurcating, trifurcating, quadrifurcating into all sorts of different ways in which you can think about this problem. What are, for instance, some of the economic implications? Uh, what are the potential social and, and gender, racial uh, implications that would actually bring different perspectives to bear? One example of this interdisciplinary focus is Robert Ferrochnia. He's a Columbia faculty member with appointments in business, in engineering, and a lecturer in the Graduate School of Journalism. He's been studying people's spending habits during the pandemic. So as expected in our results, um, supermarkets and grocery and pharmacy spending went up as restaurants and transport went down. Um, and But you know, obviously there are some interesting nuances that you see that, for instance, for public transport, we, we saw a spike toward uh, end of February, early March. That's perhaps attributed uh, to folks going home or wanting to shelter in place with parents or family. Uh, but then it uh, dramatically went down uh, right afterwards. His data also revealed some surprises that challenged certain narratives centered on political affiliation out there in the media. So that contrary to what we uh, you might hear in the news, uh, in general, those leaning Republican or Republic, identifying as Republican versus uh, Democrats uh, more or less uh, behave similarly. And they seem to... Uh, you know, care more for the, the, the well-being of their family and survival more than, 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 than politics. The symposium has given birth to many new collaborations, and Dr. Ferrochnia was no exception. After his talk, he was approached by other scholars interested in working with his data. So one of the most uh, exciting part of our presentation at the symposium was me mentioning seeking collaborators, and to my delight, uh, we had a number of uh, researchers, including faculty and postdocs and PhD students um, who were working on related projects and are more than happy to provide open access to and be in, in, in active discussion uh, in creating a framework to kind of scale our activity and, and do more uh, uh, research along those lines. So that was probably one of the most exciting outcomes of the, uh, our presentation at the symposium. So organizing the COVID symposium, it's been a lot of work. But Kelly Ramol says that the impact it's had has made it all worthwhile. There's been an outpouring of goodwill and appreciation for this pan-Columbia effort. The responses actually amazed me from the business school and public health and nursing to the law school and economics and just really every corner of Columbia all of a sudden had faculty and postdocs and adjuncts really interested in this topic. And that is testament to how this force of Columbia is really mobilizing against this brand new foe. People just keep saying, thanks for doing this. This is amazing. I don't know how else I would get this information. This is so appreciated. Thanks for listening to Lab in the Time of Coronavirus. Take a look at the show notes for links to all the things we discussed, including links to YouTube recordings of many of the presentations. You can find all of our episodes at zuckermaninstitute.columbia.edu or on iTunes. Take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. That makes it easier for other people to find us. And if you'd like to learn more about Columbia's COVID-19 virtual symposium, check out the Zuckerman YouTube channel. 
Special thanks to Rui Costa, Jennifer Ferris, everyone who sat down with us for this episode, and the entire Zuckerman team. The music was provided, as usual, by Miguel Zanon, jazz artist-in-residence at the Zuckerman Institute. And if you have any thoughts or any questions, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ZuckermanBrain. But before we go, Kathleen, I think you had one last question for the folks we interviewed. What's the first thing you plan to do post-pandemic? After this pandemic, I'm going to go see my mother, give her a hug, and then my entire family is going to go to the beach for a week. First thing I'm going to do is to have three omakase in a row at my favorite sushi restaurant. I want to send my kids back to school to be with their friends and to have a dinner party with my friends. I miss my office at Columbia campus dearly, so I'd love to be able to go back and grab all the books I left in there I can no longer have access to.